Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Family, well, we're here in, in Mark again today, and, and we want to know that there's a real turning that's going on. And if you will, the community of Israel's leadership now declares war on Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we've entitled, War Against Jesus is Declared. And you're going to see a monstrous turning here. And I want you to be aware of it. Because in fairness, as they turn to, on Jesus, Jesus told us later that the relationship between you who are a Christ follower and the unbelieving world has that same flavor of antagonism. And so sometimes we look down and say, why people, well, how, how come they don't understand? Well, you're going to learn a little bit about why they don't understand today. Keep note, and here's the fun part. Jesus already created anecdotes of awareness so that you and I can grasp the importance of who we are as we live out life in a world that's growingly more antagonistic but has always been antagonistic to who we are as Christ followers. So if you will, join me in, in Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at a lengthy period passage of Scripture, verses 22 through 35. We're not going to read the whole thing at one time. We're going to take it in little bites. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first of these little bites. The lines of war are clearly drawn. Notice, if you will, Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Family, right here, mark your Bible, just be, this is the turn on the community's response to Jesus. Now, all throughout the book of Mark, we've already seen they're beginning to turn. They're beginning to think ill of him. You remember when the paraplegic is being dropped down from the roof and Jesus calls, your sins are forgiven you. There were people who were thinking that this was blasphemy. And Jesus attacks the thinking, but nothing is expressed overtly. Later on, he's having dinner with Matthew. And there with Matthew and all of the sinners, there's Jesus and all of his followers. And they're having, they're having dinner together. Somebody looks through the front window and says, why is your master, why is Jesus eating with sinners? And Jesus takes over and reminds them that he's the physician come to heal. But again, it's off off in the, in the quiet neighborhood. It's not here in the public. Now in the public eye, the scribes who come from Jerusalem, that's a key. 
They already have traveled 80 miles north to the communities of Galilee, and they, the representatives of the leadership, now look down and they have an answer to what Jesus is doing. He is doing this by the power of Satan. He is not doing this by God on high. Family, in one sense, Jesus has already started his condemnation of the scribes, often the very rabbis within the community. Spiritual leaders throughout all of the Bible are, are, are held to a higher standard. You and I should never forget, when we elect an elder to our church, we are electing someone, we are identifying who they are as their spiritual leadership is important to us. We recognize that they have the spiritual gift of teaching if they're an elder. We recognize that they represent the best that we have to offer in godly maturity, and God recognizes that they will be judged in a significant and a priority fashion because of that unique privilege in where they're sitting. So whether it's a pastor elder or a community elder, you need to take very careful regard to who you're putting in front of you. God considers leadership very important. And in this particular case, leadership is really at the heart of what's going on. Family, Jesus is standing on a tradition that God has established for a long time. He holds a group of men called shepherds, spiritual leaders, priests, prophets, throughout Old Testament history, accountable for what they communicate to people. God has told them in the past he was especially strong during the time when Babylon was destroying the nation of Israel, or excuse me, destroying the nation of Judah, just how miserably they were representing him. And I want to read you two examples. The first is found in, in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah is actually in the town of Jerusalem as Babylon is laying siege and nearly ready to enter and control and destroy God says this through Jeremiah, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds. He then says in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. In other words, the very shepherds are using the sheep and consuming them, that they may not be food for them. So family, one of the worst things that, that we could ever happen within a spiritual community is that the very leaders use the church family, or in this case, use the family of Israel for their own selfish gain. And so, 
It's no wonder that the scribes see the attack, recognize the attack, and counter. Instead of repenting, they begin to defend themselves and attack Jesus. You see, scribes, they copied the Old Testament. They studied it. They applied it to both daily living and theological life. They're usually conservative. They were aligned with the Pharisees. And they strongly announced or denounced Jesus. Jesus strongly denounced them. And I'd encourage you sometime, read Matthew chapter 23. He will condemn them with seven woes. He will include in those woes, woe to them for unloving the people of Israel. Woe to them for spiritual pride, hypocrisy, spiritual blindness. Woe to them for legalism, insincerity, and even murder. So, family, for us to understand the scribes' attack on Jesus, we need to spend a few minutes and unpack it. I want you to notice, they never denied Jesus was performing miracles. They didn't deny that he healed. They watched it. They didn't deny that he cast out evil spirits. They watched it. They were fully aware of what went on. The evidence was there. They still accused him of being an imposter, empowered by Beelzebub. Beelzebub is a synonym here for Satan himself. So, family, what we need to realize before we even go is that faith and belief are not the result of observing the miraculous. How many times have you and I thought, well, if they only knew what Jesus can do, they would be believers? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever looked at a changed life and somebody who's radically changed and you can't figure out, how come their family doesn't respond to the gospel? One of my great privileges of being here over the years, a man by the name of Rodney came in. Rodney had just been kicked out of his own home, arrested by the police for for drunkenness. He actually punched in the bedroom window trying to get into the house because his wife had locked him out. So he comes in this this next week on a Sunday morning and accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And again, wanting his whole family back, he says, what should I do? And I looked at him and I said, I want you to keep your mouth shut. I don't want you to say a thing. Don't tell anybody you accepted Jesus. Just tell them you came to church. I said, let's see if your life changes. If your life changes, they're going to notice. Three weeks later, the wife came into church and her first words out of her mouth when we met were, what did you do to my husband? Well, family, they still live together up in Roseburg. So, understand, there's times when we look at a a life change. We look at what what God does in a person's life, and we can't figure out, how come people can't see that? You have a living example right here, that even though people see the miraculous, people are aware of what God can do. They give other credit, and they minimize the very power and the authority of God. So the scribes here prove just how faulty this thinking can be. They saw, but they didn't believe. Faith is never an automatic consequence 
of witnessing the acts of God. The words and the deeds of Jesus are evidence of God's presence, but the evidence demands a decision expressed by faith. Family, Jesus dealt with his own ranks, and and sometimes we can be faithless people. But even within his own ranks, you and I have a character, a disciple, that we know better of. And even though he saw the evidence, or he heard the evidence, he didn't respond. You and I know him very clearly, and he will be known for all eternity as doubting Thomas. You remember? Jesus had rose from the grave. Ten of the other disciples, key women within the ministry, men from the community, all came in and said, Jesus has rose. And in his hurt, he said, I will not believe unless I stick my finger in the nail print. Unless I stick my hand in the spear wound, I will not believe. Finally, Jesus shows up, and he mocks him for his very, very insolent disregard. And he simply says, my Lord and my God. And I want you to hear Jesus' response to simply this. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So family, understand, you and I sit on an incredible privilege You and I are the ones who God called blessed. Who Jesus says, you're blessed. You didn't physically see him, but you just simply were confronted with the Bible's truth and went, that makes sense. I give my life to that. I want that. And your faith verified the evidence. So family, remember that in and of itself, faith doesn't do anything. Excuse me, the evidence doesn't do anything. It's the faith that responds. So understand how important this moment is. The lines are clearly drawn, and they have set their state. This didn't happen from God. This happened from Satan. So Jesus sits down and he calmly explains his intentions. And we see that in verses 23 through 27. And I I find this to be a real encouragement to me because I'm not someone who gets attacked and then can calmly and rationally sit down and explain my intentions. Are any of you like me? So you, you see it and you get defensive and explode. That would be my natural reaction. I really am glad we have the example of Christ here. Notice what he says. And he called to them, or he called them to him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he will plunder his house. So Jesus simply comes down and he he uses a series of examples 
grounded in simple logic. If the work of Jesus is opposed to Satan, then how can Jesus be empowered by Satan is really the, the core thought. To prove his point, he uses these key illustrations. First, how can Satan cast out Satan? If Satan is at odds with himself, how can that be helpful to his plans? He comes at it a second. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And here he'll use the, the backdrop of a kingdom and then later a house. Family, never forget kingdom has the idea of a domain or a territory ruled by Satan. John 16, 11 says that Satan is the ruler of this world. 1 Corinthians 4, 4 calls Satan the god of this age. Ephesians Chapter 6, verse 12, even goes on, and, and, and let me call them, if you will, the spiritual mafia. When in verse 12, he says, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We don't, we don't just merely disagree with the world, but we have a supernatural engagement that we really don't comprehend a lot. And he goes on to, to simply call these people, or excuse me, these beings, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. Now family, we don't have a, a real clear understanding of what that is. But from the hints within Scripture, we find that Satan rules a domain covering the world in which his legion influences political powers, culture, and your and my individual behavior. That influence is strong. And Jesus simply says, if a kingdom is going through a coup or a civil war, is that really healthy for what's going on? So if the rulers were against the dominions, would that be healthy for the kingdom? Yeah, the answer is no. Same way, he says, if a house is divided. Forgive me, but is a house ever divided when the husband and the wife are at odds with one another? You be the answer to that one. The elders were just praying this morning, and we said, yes, we, we try to end the evening quiet. And then one of them said, yes, we even, my wife and I really tried to not have a problem and one of the elders looks over and he says yeah how does that go he says I usually find that we're in trouble halfway through the conversation and I find that that's true with most of us we find we're in trouble after we've gotten too far into the situation and then you have to ask yourself wow are we as a couple is this home a better place right now so Jesus just does the same questioning is the home a better place? Because there's tension there. And the answer is obviously no. He makes one last statement. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Now the strong man here is Satan. 
unless he first binds the strong man. So Jesus the stronger binds the strong man, Satan. Then indeed he may plunder his house. But I want you to hear the point of this. The point here is that the mission of Jesus is not fulfilled in compromise and coexistence. He's here to invade and conquer Satan, the head of the house. So I want you to understand that, but I also want to remind you that it's Jesus' job to bind, and it's Jesus' job to conquer, and that's exactly what we find. You will never have to pray, Lord, may Satan be bound. Satan already is bound. Satan already is tied up. Satan already is taken care of. Because we have the work of Jesus Christ finished. As he died on the cross for our sins and rose marvelously in resurrection power. Family, James even tells us just the strategy that we should use. When he simply says this in chapter 4, verse 7, of how to conquer Satan. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Now notice, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, that he will draw near to you. So there's no binding, there's no, there's no tying up, there's no need to ask that the Holy Spirit do something in a supernatural way. It's over with, you won. Because Jesus Christ won. And as you and I have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, Satan leaves. So remember the privileges that we have. Remember these applicational anecdotes that we, we have the authority, we have the privilege of walking with him as his disciples. Now as we walk from the explanation, I want you to see thirdly that Jesus now gives a warning. And Jesus warns against disrespect of the Holy Spirit. So notice now what you see in verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Now, please understand, before we go back, go any farther, make awareness of that phrase. Notice, all sins. And go how far, and whatever blasphemes they utter. Now, verse 29, but to whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Family, this is possibly, in terms of salvation, the number one question that elders are often, answered, are often asked. And, and it's really scary when someone comes into your office and says, I can't ever get saved. I've committed the impardonable sin. Well, let's answer that question today. Let's, let's walk out of here with a little bit of confidence, okay? First off, I, I want to challenge you. You go home and do your own Bible study. Uh, there is no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. You won't find it. So when you look down and say, well, I've committed the impardonable sin, the mere fact that you have a heart that wants forgiveness, 
recognizes the tenderness of your heart. The Holy Spirit's reason for here is to root out sin and disrespect and bring about repentance and revival. He helps us recognize God's truth when we see it. Now here's the key. If people refuse the Spirit's guidance enough, they will become hardened to the truth. In their eyes, evil and good are blurred. They cannot tell the difference between the work of God and the evil of Satan. So let's walk through a couple of examples. How many times have you seen that wonderful license plate in the back of some people that says coexist? And you see all of the symbols. Remember seeing that? So you see Christianity. You see the cross. You see the Star of David. You see the crescent of Islam. You continue to see other markings, and I forget what they are, but you recognize Hinduism. You recognize Confucian and Taoism. And here's the issue. Putting all of those on the same plane and recognizing they're all equal and they're all just expressions of worship to God mixes the evil of having reliance on spiritual truth not given by God. So you have all of this in a blurred fashion. And so we're calling evil good and good evil and we've made them all identifiably the same. And what he's simply recognizing is when you cannot tell the difference between the work of God and the evil of Satan, you're in a very, very weakened position. One commentator, H.B. Sweet, said it this way, to identify the source of good with the embodiment of all evil implies a moral wreck for which the incarnation itself proves no remedy. So even if Jesus Christ is fully aware of the God-man in your mind, once you've made this distinction that there is no difference and you can't figure out which one's which, there's no turning back. Let me give it to you on, a, on an applicational sense. And we have enough older folk here to understand that's importance. Do you realize in a general principle, the vast majority of people find Jesus Christ under 21 years of age? All right? They were raised in a family. They, they went to CEF when they were younger. Uh, they were a visitor to the Iwana program. They came to somebody else's Sunday school class. There was a variety of reasons why they responded to the gospel. And then life happens. And, and there's a smattering of under 40s that find Jesus Christ as their, their Savior, and they, they turn. There's, there's a wonderful privilege. They're not case-hardened, if you will. But now I want you to come to the senior years. Family, how many people find Jesus Christ as their Savior after age 70? Do you know the statistic is less than 1%? Why is that? Because we've all gotten so hardened in how we think, what we believe, and what we value, that often 
There's no turning. How often have you heard it said, well, I'm 70 years old, I'm not changing now. I have. Have you? Well, if they can't accept me for the way I am, then there's just no reason for it. I have. Have you? And we find simply that hardness, that, that inability to know what's truly good versus what's truly evil, hardens an individual's life and hardens an individual's heart so they are not open to repentance towards the offer of salvation that Jesus Christ provides. And so the answer is, is, is not that you have said something. The offer is, is that you no longer have the ability to look at yourself and recognize that good is now in front of you. And the offer of salvation is clearly made aware to you. And you look down and you deny it with the inability to distinguish between the evil that blinds and the offer of salvation that illuminates. And so, Jesus gives a warning. Don't, don't let this happen. But it is a, a warning against the backdrop that he forgives all. And all blaspheme is forgiven. So when you hear it, that you've committed the impardonable sin, just encourage people. The mere fact that they have a tender heart means they are open to the precious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's, let's notice, if you will, the fourth of these, these key anecdotes. And, and they're really, I think, for us personally today, it's a, a wonderful promise. Jesus explains his true family. Notice, if you will, beginning in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who is my mother and my brothers? And looking about to those who sat around him, he said, Here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Family, you already know the backdrop. We preached it last week. But for you to remember what's going on, I want to push you back to chapter 3, verse 20. Notice what it says. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. So understand this moment in time. They're not coming in and saying, hey Jesus, come on home, it's dinner. This is an intervention. They're looking down and going, hey, we got to get that fruitcake off the street. We've got to get that nut back home. He's embarrassing us. He's, he's not fulfilling his financial responsibility to the family. We've got to take care of him. That's what's going on. This is a rejection at this point of his message. And as someone reminded last night, don't ever forget, mom is here too at this point. 
Family, there might be no greater hurt than the rejection by your family blood to the truth of Scripture. That has to be even greater. That has to be even greater when you have the most joyful decision in your life rejected by those to whom you love. Even just this week, I talked to a man who told his son, I have made a determined decision. I know that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. And he said his son has not talked to him now in two years. Understand, that has to be one of the, 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 the things that break our hearts the most, is when in intimacy, in the, in the dynamic of DNA, family, someone rejects what brings us the greatest joy. But I want you to see that Jesus seems to identify with the hurt, and he leaves us with the identity of a new family. And if you will, that this, this anecdotal, applicational teaching becomes very important to you and I as a reminder of the importance of gathering in his name here and now. So I want you to see, look how Scripture binds us in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 34. I want you to see that there is a common identity. Here are people who want to be with Jesus. So notice what it says, looking about at those who sat around him. Jesus is looking down and he says, wow, you guys, you're the loyal ones. You're the ones who want to be with me. And recognize how important that is. What a, what a change that means. We've, we've looked in the, in, in the past. Matthew tells us that the, one of the scribes come and says, I'll follow you anywhere. Jesus says, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I got nothing. When he said, I have nothing, he could say that and know that here's Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, who gave up a pretty significant career, all of them to go with someone who doesn't know where his next night's sleep is going to occur. I'd rather be with Jesus. I don't know the financial commitment. I want to be there. In the crowds, Mary Magdalene. Family, how many of you are Mary Magdalene who could go in front of her Savior and recognize his feet weren't as clean as they should be to be in a home and cried and used the tears and the moisture that it provided to provide enough moisture to wash and clean his feet and her own hair to clean it off and dry it off. Forgive me, those are people who want to be around Jesus. And you and I as Christ followers, you and I have, have made a commitment. Some of you did it in, in absolute innocence and life has turned out really well for us. But I'm hoping every one of us in this room would have said, wow, even if he didn't give me tonight's awareness where I'm going to sleep, I'd, I'd follow him. I, I'm there. And I love him so much. I'm, I'm loyal to him so much. If I, see, if I saw him in need, I'd want to satisfy his needs and do so in a worshipful way that makes me lesser and him greater knowing that he will make me greater because i made him greater so family we now have an identity that 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 radically changes life for us 
We want to be identified with Jesus. This identity creates a new family loyalty because we have a very, very new and dynamic family, not made by DNA, but made by the blood of Jesus Christ. So Ephesians could say in, in verse one or chapter one, verses three and five, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so, family, we've been brought into a new family. And what a privilege that is. And if you will, let me remind you of a, of a value that we hold at CBC. If you walk through that front door or any door to come into here, you need to understand one of the clear hallmarks of what we expect of each other here is you declare amnesty. If somebody in Christ has wounded you in a past church, ready? Just like frozen, let it go. Let it go. Why? Because you're family. You have forgiven that DNA brother of yours or that sister of yours for enough. Let it go in Christ. First off, it's exactly what Jesus expects of us. Secondly, it provides you a freedom. We always use the expression of, <laughs> so that when you meet him in, in town, and I use always the expression of Costco. Family, I, I think Costco has become the city square of the 21st century. All right? My parents, when they were kids, they ran to the downtown to see what everybody was doing. They played downtown. We don't do that anymore. We go to Costco. All right? And we've all been in situations where we have watched or we've been guilty. We've seen someone else from our past walking down aisle three and we go down aisle five. And we wait till they're through aisle three and then we double back and go down through aisle three so we don't have any connection with them. You see, I don't ever want that to be in Christ because we have a new identity. Christ has united us. Why would we look down and say, wow, I'm going to choose not to get along with? I've declared amnesty. So we have, an, we have a common identity now. I want you to notice we now have a common purpose. Family members want to do the will of God, and so that's exactly what we see here in this Scripture. And if you understand love is bound by submission, whether that submission is to the authority of Jesus Christ or to our shared alliance to each other in Jesus Christ. So Jesus told us clearly in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus did all of this for us as we saw the, the identity. Man, it, it's easy now, or easier to understand, wow, I submit my life to the one who sacrificed his for me. Those of you who know a harmonious home, whether you have a roommate or you have a mate, you need to understand and you need to recognize that if you're going to live under the same roof, there's a sense of mutual submission, right? Forgive me, but my wife hates taking out the garbage. And it happens, she does it, because I'm terrible. But I want you to understand, I make it every attempt that I can, that on Wednesday, sometime, 
I start first in our bathroom, then I head to her office, emptying both trash bins and then going out to the one in the kitchen and emptying that one, pouring everything in there, taking out my single garbage bag and heading it out to the garbage can. I always have to ask her which one, red or green this week. And then I walk whatever I was supposed to to the, to the, to the curb. If perchance Thursday morning comes and I hear the guy, I don't look down and say, well, honey, you got to hustle. I do. I know she doesn't like it. But I know what she does for me. I know what she does for me. Submission's easy because love's there. It binds us. So is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that, he says, a new command I give unto you, that you love one another. Family, w- what other example is there to, to wash each other's feet than mutual submission? And so we have this incredible privilege of purpose together. We're, we're, we're family. We love one another. And then in teamwork, we take that gospel the, the thing that changed us to our circle cards. And we consider the privilege of telling that story a unified expression of our purpose. I want you to notice, lastly, we have a common intimacy. Jesus said, He is my brother. Now, quickly, I need to add the assumption within the Greek language would have gone like this He is my brother. She is my sister. She is my mother. And I want you to take clear expression of the pronoun my. Never forget that the Savior knows you. You're not accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior in this vast, unknown situation like you sitting up in elementary school and using the Pledge of Allegiance. We're Americans, so we do this. That's not the case. You identified with one who identifies with you. You and I should know that. So Nathaniel, in chapter 1 of John, could have his first conversation with Jesus, and Jesus says, yeah, I know you. You're that guy under the tree that was shading himself from the sun. I know you. I know what you even thought about. So he could tell the woman at the well, Hey, I know you. You had five husbands. And the guy you're living with now is not your husband. I know you. And I forgave you. I know you. He knows you. He knows all about you. He knows your strengths, your foibles, your sins. He knows. And he's called you into his family. You're mine. You're mine. Never forget, in family, there's an identity. So, we're at war. Not because we ask for it, but because just like the leadership, the scribes of 2,000 years ago, they declared war on Jesus. Jesus does this in the power of Satan. Jesus does this with evil. And family, people have not understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and your decision to follow it since then. 
But whether it's the theological truth of salvation and the goodness of our Savior that you can rest on, or the relational privilege of who we are now as the adopted in to the family of God. Never forget, God prepared us to live out life in the 21st century for His grace and His goodness. And in doing so, we are victorious in Him. Father in heaven, I'd ask that you'd watch over. Dear God, please give us the awareness of your grace and your goodness. That Father, in, in, in the reality of living out Monday through Saturday, before we come here, help us to remember that dear God, when we watch the news, you already heard it. And you ask us to trust your eternal perspective. And we lay our confidence in what we know is the more powerful one. Father in heaven, I would ask that you would help us as we live life out Monday through Saturday. And Father, we see that, that, that believer who's been in our life in the past, who just simply is a curmudgeon, that dear God, we remember that they also have splinters in their eyes, blinded by things that Satan has brought in. And dear God, we can be continued aid in removing those splinters by the godly behavior of our lives. Dear God, I would pray that you would allow us to wash one another's feet in submission. Father, to, to, to be able to, to live life with, with those who don't see the hurts of, of their own sinful behavior. And dear God, though they know Christ, we recognize that they also aren't perfect. And we walk with them. So that, Father, when we come on Sunday morning, having lived life Monday through Saturday, we can now look down and praise the one who prepared us to live in this crazy time, who prepared us to understand truth that would scare us, who prepared us to have a family when ours may have rejected us and when the community doesn't understand us. We have all of these things given to us in Jesus. And so, dear God in heaven, help Scripture like this empower us to live seven days a week in the awareness that we have the greatest story, the greatest truth, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, having transformed us, can transform the world. And dear God in heaven, may we offer through our winsomeness and the expressions of our mouth the truth of the gospel to those who are on our circle card in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.